This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Welcome to Dose and Delivery the Podcast. In this episode, Drs. Lorraine Proventure and Connie Okeke join Dr. Paul Singh to discuss new molecules and mechanisms of action. More on this from Dr. Singh coming up on Dose and Delivery. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another podcast of Dose and Delivery. Uh, my name is Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma specialist out here in southeastern Wisconsin, and I'm honored and privileged to talk to two amazing, amazing physicians, surgeons, educators. Uh, we have Lori Preventure from Cincinnati Eye. What's up, Lori? Hey, Paul. Good evening. Good evening. And of course, we have no one other than Connie Okeke from the Virginia Eye Consultants out on the East Coast. Hey, Connie. Hey, Paul. Hey, Lori. Happy to be here. Yep. Hey, Connie. Awesome. Thank you guys for, for spending time. Lori got a nice facial today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can't see her, but she looks great on the Zoom call right now. Uh, no, but I appreciate everybody spending time uh, with us today. We're going to have some fun. You know, we it's been a lot of fun talking about glaucoma in the last few years. Obviously, MIGS has been a big hot topic and laser trabeculoplasty and drug delivery. But we don't get a chance to sometimes talk a lot about new molecules. You know, we get so focused on interventions, which is great. And I'm a big fan of getting people off of medications. Absolutely. But I think that now we have these new molecules, latanoprostenbuno, which is a nitric oxide donating uh, prostaglandin in that class. And then we also have nitric, or rather natarsidil in different forms in a combination and in a single agent as well, which also helps, again, both these drugs help maintain or improve outflow through the conventional pathway, the trabecular meshwork. So I guess, Mike, I'm going to start us off today and just talk about what is the relevance of these new molecules? You know, I think for me personally, uh, mechanism of action is becoming exciting now. You know, when I came out of fellowship many years ago, who could care less about mechanism? You take, do a TRUB or a TRAB and who cares, right? But now we're talking about TM and where the resistance to outflow is because of our MIGs and laser trabeculoplasties. I think we're thinking more of mechanism. So real quick, do you guys, both of you ladies here, feel that mechanism of action is becoming more of a hot topic and you're thinking about that more now in general when you're looking at patients in, their, in your exam room? I think that um, mechanism of action is, is important. I think that we're making it a little bit more um, uh, first of thought and with our thinking about MIGs and things like that. But to be honest, we've been using mechanism of action when we're thinking about medications for a while because you're going to say, okay, they're on you know, there's now six classes and you're going to say, okay, they're on one, this one, this one, which one can they not be on? What they had allergy for? Okay. I have this, I've gotten to the ma maximum of this many different classes of um, or mechanisms of action. So I feel like I've been kind of using it now, but it's definitely something that I'm thinking all the time. And just like medications, we use them in combination. And now we're kind of doing that with MIGs. Um, I think that it's important to think about mechanism of action and it's exciting to have another one to add to that number of, okay, I'm, I've tried these different ones, which ones can I use? And the fact that they're also very synergistic with the medicines that we have now, it's also really exciting. So, uh, you know, we have been waiting how many decades for a new drug. And so, yes, it's exciting to have something else to offer our patients and then something that is works simply and then also works well, simply in that it's just once a day, uh, but then it also is very effective. Not only mechanism of action, but like Connie said, we, we, we definitely think about that when we pick a med for various reasons, but we now have a mechanism of action or a site of action that actually matches the site of disease. 
And so being able to kind of offer that sort of treatment and try and change, you know, not reverse, but really address the side of disease is really exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, for me, I I think when I look at IOP reduction, you know, even if I get a pressure down to the same range, I would get, let's say, traditional PGA, let's say, but having something that allows us to address directly the the, the, uh, TM, it's not just bringing the pressure down, it's how we're bringing the pressures down, right? And and what does that mean long-term? So I want to ask you both a question. This is something that I know we don't have great data yet. Uh, I know we're all kind of thinking about this in some ways, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is the ramifications in your mind, in your perspective of using drugs that actually directly address the pathology, like Lori said, and helping inf- increase outflow through the TM. And what does that mean earlier in the disease? Let's say when someone, let's say a first line or second line agent to use these new molecules, do you think of that and think of what it means five, 10 years ago, later or when we do things like SLT or let's say MIGS procedures? Is that going through your mind? Let's say, Connie, when I ask that question first? Yeah, I, I- I will say that I'm I'm excited about these mechanisms. Like Lori kind of mentioned, they're you know are we changing it or are we you know modifying. It? It's very possible that we are. We're targeting the trabecular meshwork and targeting the architecture, and we're relaxing it. And we're not relaxing it with just one dose or a couple doses. We're doing it over time in chronic men. And so, what does that actually mean towards the structure, towards the tissue over the long haul? It's very possible theoretically that maybe we might be changing the future for these patients in terms of how the rate of glaucoma will progress. Because if we're now, especially if we're treating patients in the early stage, getting a chance to modify, to nourish their trabecular metric product, either restoring like that nitric oxide that is supposed to be there, that might be depleted in patients who have glaucoma, or helping them to reduce the stress fibers that are, are, are present in glaucoma, maybe over time, um, with consistency, we might actually change that architecture and make it more pliable, make it more physiologically um, sound to be able to allow that outflow to happen. And what does that do over years, decades to a patient's glaucoma? What if it's possible that we can take patients who otherwise would have been um, aggressive types of glaucoma, and we can actually make them more moderate or mild types of glaucoma that just don't progress as fast? It's possible. And because of those possibilities, it does make me think about it when I'm offering patients, especially when they're either early or new. Um, I do think about these new mechanisms of action in these drugs. And yes, sometimes it's difficult because of their insurance, uh, but when it's not, um, I'm often leaning towards uh, these newer drugs of uh, the metaprostine gunad or uh, nertanacidil to think about um, for the future for these patients. Lori, quick question for you on that note. You know, when you talk about, me- Ghani mentioned mechanism of action. When you have a drug like the, one of these, Intarsidil, Tantaprost, and Bunode, do you feel like by improving TM outflow, you, there's a theoretical chance it maybe prevents further collapse? So if we do, let's say, a MIGS procedure sometime in the future that might benefit potentially earlier we intervene with these medications or more we keep the canal collapsed or out of patent rather. So if instead of doing like, let's say, aquasuppressant forever, we're decreasing inflow, decreases the TM flow and potentially collapses the canal further. Does that play a role in your mind in any way? I think it's starting to more and more as we start to talk about this more and more as a field. Um, I like your example, you know, or if you think about patients who have had a trabeculectomy, right? So they've had outflow going a new route for a long time. And then when the TRAB fails or if the TRAB fails, you wonder, is SLT going to work? is a MIGS procedure going to work? And that's just in a way, an extreme example of changing outflow. And, you know, is aqueous suppression over years, a similar thing, 
just on a much smaller, less aggressive scale? I don't think we know, but it's certainly something to think about that if we can keep the flow going through these, you know, physiologic channels, like Connie said, will we be able to change their course? And will we be able to not only change their course, but if we do need these interventions down the road, will they work better? So yeah, I am thinking about it more and more, especially for patients who come in with earlier stage disease. And Connie, you, you've done some studies too with like new starts with, let's say, latanoprus and bunode and others. And in terms of efficacy, have you found that it works really well, let's say, in earlier new start kind of patients? Yeah, you know, I, I actually had a, it was a patient that kind of prompted to, to do this study. Um, There's a patient, it was like a 45 year old gentleman, Caucasian gentleman who came in, newly diagnosed, a newly diagnosed with glaucoma, who was referred from an optometrist, hadn't been treated yet. His pressures were like 34 in one eye and 25 in the other. And I knew that he was a, someone who traveled a lot, did not want to have a lot of medications. And so we were thinking about early SLT for him, but I wanted to start him on something before I brought him back to the clinic for the laser treatment. And we start, I said, okay, you know what? Just by Zolta as a new medicine, has different mechanisms of action. I'm interested to see how this might work for you. And it's simple, it's once a day. So he came back about a week later and his pressures had dropped in the eye that was 34 to 19. And an eye that was 25 to 14. So it was a 44% drop in eye pressure. And I was like, wow, this is like someone who's like responding really super. And this is, does this have something to do with the fact that his TN is still really pliable, amendable to being able to be treated with this nitric oxide in addition to the uh, prostaglandin mechanism? And uh, it just prompted, you know, what, what do we know about virgin eyes and with this medication? And, and maybe they are the class of people who are a little bit more responsive. So we did a study, um, uh, a real world study. There were nine different sites, MDs and ODs. And we were looking at patients who just never had any kind of treatment for glaucoma, just newly diagnosed. And they were started on lentenprostin um, uh, gunad and they were using it for at least um, two visits, which spanned over about uh, two to three months. Um, and so then they were um, seen. And what we found was we, there was about 65 patients, 125 eyes. And we uh, looked at them and kind of sub, um, segmented them into patients who had pressures that were over 21 and patients had pressures under 21. Um, and what we found is overall as a group with a, I think the mean was around 21.6 or 21.7, um, there was a 31% reduction in eye pressure. And so that was consistent with uh, the clinical trials, which is about 32 um, in the Apollo and the lunar trials. And then in terms of the subset, when we looked at the patients whose pressures were higher, um, their mean was about 26.7, um, they had about a 41% reduction in eye pressure. And then the lower group, um, the mean uh, pressure was um, about, uh, average pressure was about 17, um, around 17. Um, their reduction was about 22%. So across the board, there was still a good reduction, um, but it was advantageous in the higher group. And so when I see patients who, um, are newly diagnosed with glaucoma, I really uh, like the option of giving them LBN because I'm thinking, okay, I, it's going to be very effective. And even with the low pressure, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's difficult to try to lower the pressure when it's um, already really low. Um, and then the whole concept of maybe this nitric oxide, which is deficient in patients who have glaucoma, and actually doing something that is beneficial for them. They may see now in terms of pressure reduction, but possibly in the long term, with the continued use and what it might do on the trajectory of the system. Now, it's a great example. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's it kind of get, it hedges your bets. 
you know, I think the, when we look at our first line agents, let's say prostaglandin type of medications, you want to know, you know, what, if I'm going to put someone on this medication, am I going to get to my target range? Am I going to get to that response that I want? And I think kind of hedges your bets, whether you're high or middle or lower, you're going to probably get that response you want. You brought up a good point about lower IOPs. You know, so many of our patients, depending on the studies, between 30 and 40% of our patients have pressures under 21, right? So it's not necessarily normal tension glaucoma as a subset of a different kind of glaucoma, it's just POAG patients tend to have lower pressure sometimes. And, you know, I found too, you know, getting pressures, even patients who have on a PGA, who have pressures down to the middle teens, it's hard to get lower with an aquasuppressive Look closer we get down to EVP. Laura, I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, using, I'm not sure if you've used natarsidil in those lower tire patients where they're already at like 12, 13, 14 range. Are you still able to get a response in, in with natarsidil at those lower IOPs to begin with? Yeah, I, I have. And actually that is oftentimes why, why I will reach for natarsidil. In these patients, and I say to them, you know, I have a couple options on the table for you, but this this medication, in my opinion, and based on actually data that we have, is the most likely to get you where you need to be. And so I reach for it first because you know a lot of times with these patients we don't have a ton of time to continue to bring them back in and class switch and wait for their pressures to be controlled, especially when they have a lot of field loss. So if I'm going to try a medication, it's going to be natarsidil for that reason, because of the EVP lowering or um, episcleral venous pressure lowering. And then also the fact that we know that kind of no, oftentimes, no matter where they fall in the IOP range, we're able to get them down four to five points. Yeah, that, that really has been shocking to me too. I'll be honest with you. I was surprised, you know, and just so everybody out there, EVP is episcleral venous pressure, which is the kind of the, the pressure in our venous system, which is the, the really why we can't get hypotony when we look at the conventional pathway system. And that is a, a benefit for MIGS, but when we're talking about trying to get pressures down, especially in drops as well, it's hard when you have an aquasuppressant, you can't get lower than that floor, right? And that floor can be between six and 12, depending on patients. So when you get down to the middle teens or so, it's hard to get aquasuppressants to go down at lower. And I've found you're you're right with natarsidil because it does lower EVP 10% in different studies. Um, it, that actually has, I've had patients with pressure of 11, 12 to begin with, and I'm trying to do a surgery on them. They, they refuse surgery. I put them on natarsidil. I'm still getting like three, mil, three to four milligrams of mercury reduction despite starting so low. And so I think that was unique as well, having that kind of lower IOP to begin with and actually still able to get another two or three, four points starting that low as well. Which brings me to another point. I want to, oh, Connie, do you have a question or thought on that? No, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, I was kind of excited with that the most trial. I mean, because I thought that it really showed well what's really happening in, in a clinic setting. I mean, with the most trial, uh, they're, um, they segmented patients into people who were treated with um, uh, whether just a PGA or with just multiple other drops. And so they, <clears throat> they looked at the nitrosidol being added to those groups and whether you're on one PGA or whether you're on just many drops, which could include a PGA plus maybe another combination medicine, um, there was about a 20% reduction from the baseline IOP. And it was pretty consistent. And um, like Lori just mentioned, it's like something that you see. And like you mentioned, Paul, it always kind of, you know, makes me say, wow, when I have a patient who's like in the low teens and I put them on their tacidil and then I can get single digits. And I'm like, this is great. Uh, so it's, it's, it's actually a really great tool to have, you know, and like you said, some people really don't want to have surgery and they're willing to, you know, just add another drop just once a day. And so, um, so, yeah, it's a great resource to be able to have, a great tool to add to our, our pocket. 
I know we love surgery and, and it, all three all three of us are big fans of interventional in general uh, mindsets. So quick question for you guys. Have you felt now more than ever before that your definition of controlled glaucoma or maximum tolerated medical therapy, MTMT, has changed over the last few years? I mean, I've been around for 15 years. I can tell you for me it has, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially with these new molecules and now with having safer surgical interventions. Have you changed that? kind of definition of controlled glaucoma or what is MTMT? Lori, what are your thoughts on that? I, I have definitely. I mean, obviously I haven't been out in the real world for super long, <laughs> but just in the, you know, three or four years since I was a resident to now, you know, out on my own, what I was taught in residency is different from what I was taught in fellowship and different from what I'm doing now. So things are changing so rapidly, but Absolutely. You know, with these, like you mentioned, new molecule, new molecules and these surgeries we have that are safer, we can offer these things sooner. And so the risk benefit balance is just constantly shifting. And so I think max medical therapy that in the traditional sense where patients are maxed out on meds, five agents, miserable, possibly poor adherence, um, that is no longer what we should consider max tolerated in medical therapy. And so I, you know, uh, these things free us up to think about that and to talk about that with our patients. And so now more than ever, I feel like every patient is a different puzzle and I sit down with them and see what they can tolerate and how they're doing. And ma we make a decision together, what we need to do at least when it comes to intervention versus medicine. And sometimes it's a balance. Sometimes, you know, we need both. Um, but again, they, they're pairing well together as we move forward. Do you find that when patients come in, uh, let's say in multiple drops, let's say polypharmacy, not four or five, let's say individual, let's say generic medications. Uh, do you find yourself saying, Hey, let me see if I can minimize that by switching over to a brand name, or let's say one of these newer molecules to see, see if you can actually get rid of some of the drops without having to do any inter intervention. Does that ever happen to you? I do. I think it's, it's fun. It's exciting when a patient sits down in front of me and presents to me with all these medications and I will try and feel them out. So I, some patients we have to recognize are stable on all these medications. You know, we have to be okay with that, just leaving them alone um, and checking our bias, right? Cause a lot of patients might have red eyes and are taking all these drops, but they might be okay. And they might be okay with their red eyes. So it's, it's an interesting balance, but a lot of them don't even know they have other options. So I try and sit down with them and try and get them to voice any concerns they have. I try not to bring it up. Um, and if they do have issues, I again, talk to them about options like reducing the fixed combination, once a day dosing, pairing it with SLT or MIGS, whatever we can do to be pretty minimally invasive, but to still make a difference in their quality of life. No, that's great. Connie, what are your thoughts on that? And, and do you think these new molecules, do you ever kind of say, hey, let me see if I can use this new molecule to get them off of some other generic, let's say combinations or in individual drops, just because you might have a different efficacy, a different mechanism with these new medications? I'm a big proponent of trying to simplify a patient's regimen and understanding that there's real issues related to appearance. Uh, sometimes we see it in the clinic, sometimes we don't. Our patients want to please us so they can sometimes say things that we just want to hear. Um, so I definitely do use these new molecules and either, either singly or in combination um, with other ones to try to reduce. Um, I will put out there that I also am a big proponent of using compounded drops, especially when patients are uh, like three or more, like a three uh, to four different types of generic medicines. I think count, compounding drops can sometimes work really well. Say, for example, someone is on um, 
a timolol and a um, dorazolamide and, and the bromonidine. Um, and then um, with that, maybe they need to have even more pressure reduction. So I can get a combination medicine that puts all three into one and then say, add their tarsidol. Uh, and now it's a much simpler regimen with much less toxicity. Um, so there is ways to um, reduce and still combine with these newer medications and get their benefit. But I agree, there have been times when I've switched a patient who might've been on a, um, a uh, adjunct plus a PGA and I switched them to LBN or the same thing with a Rocketin um, or the same thing with Nertacidil um, um, plus a uh, Lentanoprost. Uh, so I think that it's a, a great uh, these are all great options. And like Lori said, it's sometimes exciting uh, when you see a patient who's had a lot of polypharmacy and you realize that, okay, I can mix and match and do this in order to create a better picture for you. And whether it's just with medications or whether it's in combination with um, SLT or mixed procedure, um, anything to try to help them reduce their burden, um, reduce their load. Because even if sometimes, as Lori said, they can be doing great with what they're doing, and sometimes they realize there's other options, they actually will say, wow, if I know that there's other options, I would love to not have to do drops all day long and be able to still in, in have, have, keep my vision, enjoy life and you know, not have to worry about all these different details, so. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I've, I've been lecturing for a while. Compliance sucks, <laughs> no matter how much we try to sugarcoat it, it really sucks. It's part of the hardest thing to deal with in medical management of glaucoma. So if we can simplify the regimen with these neuromolecules or just other in general combinations, I think it's always important. Well, that last topic before we end this, this has been great, by the way. Thank you, everybody. This has been awesome. Um, wanted to talk about how this relates to MIGS. And so, you know, when you do, let's say a MIGS procedure, and, and, and again, all through all of us love to doing the canalplasties and, you know, GATS and stenting and you name it. But when you do those and then you have to put some people on drops, does that impact your decision of what type of class of medications after you do a MIGS procedure? Do you do kind of take into consideration what you've done and what kind of medications you want to add to that after a MIGS procedure? Lori, want to take that? I do. And I think, you know, we all hope that we can get people off meds altogether, but that's just not reality. Um, so I kind of consider post MIGS a reset button. And, um, I try in most patients, if I can, to stop medications at the time of surgery, it just works easier for me and my flow. Of course it has to be safe, but to stop medications after surgery and then taper steroids or add medications back as we go is sort of my algorithm. Um, and again, I just want to emphasize that's if the field can tolerate it, but, um, when I do add medications back in, just like you mentioned, Paul, I'm more conscientious, right? Because I'm getting to make the decisions this time, especially if they came into me on all these medications. So I always aim for monotherapy um, and I aim to do things that are going to work for them in the long run too. So getting to know them and how they can take drops is important. But like Connie mentioned earlier, some of our monotherapies are our once a day dosing, like a prostaglandin analog were all we had when it came to once a day dosing. And now we have more options like with LBN or Nutarsidil. Nutarsidil doesn't have some of the long-term periocular effects that Latanoprost does. So now we have this whole new expansion um, when it comes to once a day dosing. So I am more conscious of that. I'm also thinking about how some of these um, TM-based drugs can pair well with the MIGS procedures we do. So again, 
trying to focus on outflow instead of necessarily focusing on um, uveoscleral outflow or aqueous suppression. No, that's great. Uh, what about you, Connie? Do you find yourself thinking about those same issues when you're doing before or after MIGS? Yeah, I think that in terms of the MIGS procedures, postoperatively, I tend to stop the PGAs. I personally just feel that it has an impact on the healing process. And so sometimes a PGA, uh, that class can be a great medicine for them in the long term because it's simple and it's efficacious. Uh, so there might be patients who I stop it and during the postoperative period, but then afterwards, um, when they've healed and there's no inflammation, I can start them on a simpler uh, regimen if they still need a medication. Um, and, um, you know, it's like LBN might be a, a, a great choice um, in thinking about the, um, helping with the pressure lower and also it's affecting TM. Um, Nertacidil is a great drug uh, that I use often in the postoperative period. Um, I like it because I don't have to you know, think about the inflammatory process and I'm thinking about how it's also working on the TM, uh, which can be synergistic with the procedure that I just did. And so I think it's a great drug. It's simple. Um, and so it's often something I use in the uh, patients postoperatively. And again, like I mentioned before, um, you know, the whole mechanism of action of how the tacital works and its effect on the TM, I do um, often tend to consider keeping them on the medicine, especially if it's well tolerated. And then my younger patients, um, uh, there are times when I might choose to use nertacidil in a patient who is young because I'm thinking about them long-term and I don't want to think about the PGAs and the effect of either color change, um, pigmentation, or uh, periodical changes that can happen. Um, so nertacidil could be a, a very good option thinking about that. Uh, so uh, I agree that there's, there's some great places for them surrounding either the post-operative period or after uh, the mixed procedure to try to help enhance what was done. Nice. Quick question for you. Have you guys used Natarsidil after a GAT or you or some kind of removal cutting procedure? Have you guys used that and do you find it still has efficacy after removing TM or cutting TM? Yeah, I have. I mean, it, it, it works at the TM, but it works distally too, you know, with our episcleral venous pressure and actin and myosin are all along that that pathway. So I think it's a very natural, very logical next agent to add after you've done a canaloplasty or a, a goniotomy. And then also with the goniotomies, I mean, you mentioned the GAT. Um, there are some procedures that I, I do 360, but it's not always so common to be honest, because I'm always thinking about, okay, um, the, the way that our technology is going for glaucoma with all these different um, interventions that are coming out, I don't know if maybe I need the architecture of the TM for something. So sometimes I, I kind of want to leave a little bit, um, maybe even just up to at least a quadrant um, of TM tissue in order to be able to utilize it for something else that could be possibly, possibly needed in the future. And with the um, medication, the Casadil, it can still work on that area of the TM. But like Corey was saying, there's also the mechanism of the episcleral venous pressure pathway that can also be affecting as well. Exciting times ahead. I mean, there's so much more we still have to learn about glaucoma. I think with MIGS and with these new molecules and I think diagnostics coming our way, I think we're going to see the ability for us to actually preoperatively understand where the resistance to outflow is. I mean, there's a number of different companies, a number of different you know, colleagues of ours who are working on different devices to see if there's a diagnostic tool, which is a non-invasive way to understand where the resistance is. We can pick our MIGS procedure or even think about pre and post 
what kind of, let's say, molecules to use to help uh, kind of, uh, I think, uh, tailor these medications to the right patient as well. I think that's going to be important. And can we use these medications to kind of also give us a little diagnostic potential? They didn't do really significantly well with this in a tarsidol or LBN. Does that mean the resistance is in a certain position? Is it beyond the TM, let's say, hypothetically? Is it, is it distal channels, hypothetically? So I think there's a lot more that we have to understand and have to learn as we utilize these molecules and start to intervene more and have better understandings. But uh, it's an exciting time. So I just want to say, first of all, Lori and Connie, this was awesome. You guys are so awesome to hang out with. I learned a lot from you. And this is why I love these podcasts, because I get to learn from my colleagues. This is great. Um, any last comments that you guys have for our audience out there in terms of just glaucoma or any, any pearls of wisdom? I'll say, I just think like you mentioned, Paul, it's an exciting time. And I think, I think it takes bravery to th think outside the box, but when we have um, new technologies available, it's, it's okay to think in new ways. So I just encourage everyone to, to do that. And, and I'll second that from, from Lori. I think that as we, there's so many questions that we have, um, but as we keep pressing forward and keep trying new things and then sharing that information when something seems to work well, I think that that is going to be, you know, really helpful as we move towards the future. Um, I think it also, when you share, sometimes you can stimulate ideas that become um, the next uh, intervention. So I love this setting of uh, being able to be stimulated by my colleagues and talking about uh, things that are near and dear to us and to uh, benefit our patients. And so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to chat with you guys and also learn from you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I agree with you, all those comments. Keep pushing forward, everybody. Don't be afraid. Try new things. We, we, we don't, don't feel complacent. You know, we, there's so much more we still have to learn and, and help our patients. So with that said, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please stay tuned for another episode of uh, Dose Delivery, another podcast coming your way soon. But one more time, thank you to Lori and Connie for an excellent discussion. And everybody hang in there, stay safe and healthy and enjoy. We'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Dose and Delivery, the podcast. If you have feedback or topic suggestions to share, find us on Glaucoma Today's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on Dose and Delivery, the podcast. Dose and Delivery.